No, that's totally fine. You got a lot going on back there. Um, I'm also a lot, so we're a good uh, we're a good combo here. <laughs> um, okay, some announcements that I have for you. We are so excited to get to do soccer club in two weeks. We have a big training for all of our coaches and assistant coaches today that I'm really excited about. Um, and we had a couple of families uh, kind of at the last minute drop out because they weren't able to come for the week. Um, and so if you know of someone that wants to be able to come, we still have some spots left and we would just love to fill them. We want a jam-packed um, field there. We had a surprise um, come our way this week on Thursday and um, the school district let us know that Briar Terrace Middle School is no longer available to us. Um, the really good news was they found a school for us to be at. So we are going to move to Mount Lake Terrace High School, um, which is a little bit uh, bigger of a space and probably a blessing in disguise, albeit more work. Um, but if you have friends that are coming to soccer club with you, help us to spread the word. An email is going to go out this afternoon and we're going to ask people to get back to us and just confirm because we don't want anyone over at Briar Terrace Middle School when we're all at the high school. And so um, we'll also be calling people if they don't email. So the quicker that people respond to us, Brookview included, um, the more at ease we will be and able to focus on the other minor details of running a camp that has almost 140 kids in it. And yeah, isn't that exciting? And I think we have um, almost 40 volunteers. So thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone. Um, another thank you that I have is Cedar Way. Um, we got to do our food pantry distribution this last Tuesday. And um, I took a picture, and I totally forgot, but I'll remember it some other day, of the lineup of bags that we had. And we didn't have as many families come. They didn't move over from those other sites that they had closed down. And so we got to give Vision House what was left um, of those produce bags. And um, they happened to have a big event going on that evening. And so it was just a huge gift for their families to be able to take those produce items along with all the other things that you guys generously donated. As well, the woman at Cedar Way that we have kind of rallied together as a community to provide dentures for got to have her initial appointment on Friday. And so when I um, saw her on Tuesday, she was like, oh, Friday's the day, and I'm so excited. And she was without a mask, and she was like, I can't wait to get all of this fixed. And she has a beautiful smile, you guys, and it's going to be amazing when it's a smile without um, broken and missing teeth. So um, just a beautiful, beautiful thing that we got to do on her behalf and to love somebody really well. And so I just want to extend a huge thank you to the way that you guys are constantly having your head up. When we say something, hey, we have a need, it's like being met like that. And um, if those of you, some of you are traditionally used to going to that Cedarway and that Vision House list, and, 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 you know, the week before, we filled up a week and a half early on that. So just really cool, really cool. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, we have another announcement, and I'm going to hand it off to Trevor because he has all the deets. Actually, he has all the hype. So that's what this is about. Hype man, let's go. Bring in the hype. <laughs> What's up? Let's go. Okay. <laughs> Um, so, uh, I don't know if it's going to pop up there, but on August 11th and the 25th, we're going to bring it back and we're going to be doing a dinner in the park just down the street at Briar Park. That's what it's called, right? Yes. Okay, cool. It's going to be our park that day. Um, so, during that, um, it's bring your own food. So, people might come with like Chick-fil-A or come in with Taco Bell or whatever you guys want to bring. You guys are going to bring your own dinner and we're all going to eat together um, at the park. Also, the really hype part that I love is that we're gonna do like a big like kickball game. So adults, kids, everybody intermix, like it's gonna be epic, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Um, we want uh, people to be there. Um, it's gonna be, hopefully it's sunny and everybody's just smiling and it's great and it's summer and we're all together. And so yeah, I'm just super pumped for it. So you guys should come out. Awesome. 
And then the last announcement that we have is to have you fill out your online communication card. And way, way back in the olden days, pre-COVID, we used to fill out little paper cards and then we'd pass a basket along the rows and we'd collect all of those. And I think the happiest person that those went away, actually there's two very happy people. One, it's me. Because copying those and cutting them and stuffing them in things, it's kind of nice to not have that be my Saturday rhythm. That was my rhythm for 12 years. Um, Katie DeSanctis is the other person because she would take all those cards home with her and she would compile all the data for us. And so we have a digital way of doing that. And we just love to hear from you. We love to hear from you at home. Those of you that are watching, even if you pop into your online communication card and say nothing, it's just fun to know that you're here and that you're with us. We love you and we miss you. And for those of you that are here in person, we also love to hear from you. And that communication card is a great way to respond to any announcements, but also just to kind of let us know how we can be praying for you and other things that are going on in your life. So please go to brookviewchurch.com forward slash contact and fill that form out. That's it. Jason, would you bless us? Jennifer, you look especially nice today. Yeah. It's my wife, for those of you that are new. I don't flirt with all the ladies on this stage. Um, well, I want to start today by asking you guys to imagine something. So if you feel comfortable enough, close your eyes for a moment. Imagine you live in a small village and you hear Jesus is in town. So you walk a few miles, and you fight through the crowds to see him, and now you are standing right in front of him. You're looking at him, and he's looking at you. This is your, your moment with Jesus, the famous healer. You can ask him to heal something in your life, like anything. So what would you ask him to do? And then think about your like, actual life right now. What, what would you ask him to do? What would you ask him to heal? But also imagine this. What is his disposition toward you? Is it warm? Is it cold? Is it indifferent? Is it uninterested? Is it delighted? As you stand before him about to make the big ask, what, what do you sense Jesus feels toward you? Okay, you can open your eyes. All through the Gospels, people come to Jesus with requests. They fight like mad to get to Jesus to ask him to do something. They want him to do something for them. And sometimes his reaction is, is warm and soft and gentle. And other times it's not warm and soft at all. And so today we're going to look at a very interesting encounter. And this comes in Matthew chapter 15. Notice the disposition of Jesus toward this broken woman. Here we go. Verses 21 to 28. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. 
Okay, if you're anything like me, this passage makes you uncomfortable. I mean, we, go, we read a story like this. Don't we read a story like this? And it's like, what the heck? <laughs> so you guys, that's what I've entitled this message. If you go on YouTube, for those of you on YouTube, you're seeing it right now. It is titled, what the heck? You guys think about how strange this story is. A desperate woman of a different ethnicity approaches Jesus asking for mercy. At first, he ignores her, so she asks him yet again, and this time Jesus compares her to a dog and says, sorry, I can't give the children's bread to a dog. But rather than being offended, she plays along with the comparison saying, but Lord, even dogs eat crumbs that fall from the table. So Jesus praises her great faith and heals her daughter. You guys, what the heck? This story raises all sorts of questions. Like, is Jesus more calloused and cold than I like to think? Is he being rude? But, but a deeper, maybe more honest question for some might even be, is, is Jesus being racist? Is he showing prejudice against this woman precisely because she's of a different ethnicity? Like, what's happening here? Now, when, when we open our Bibles and we come across, like, provocative passages like this, we, we have a few options for how we're going to deal with it, right? First, we can just ignore them. And we do this sometimes, right? We get, you, we get to a passage like this. We've all done this. You get to a passage like this and you think, whoa, that's weird, right? And then we just keep reading. Oh, well, right? Or, or closely related is a second option. We can, we can minimize them. Like, because we want to honor Jesus and hold him in high regard, when we come across something like this, we have to, we just sort of act like, well, it must be no big deal. It's like, I don't know what's happening here, but it can't be a big deal. The thing is, if you do that again and again and again and again with hard passages, if you continually refuse to, to like raise honest questions, then you set yourself up for a shallow faith at best, and at worst, to eventually be shipwrecked by doubt. Because oftentimes, a time comes when you can no longer just sort of squish down all the hard questions. So a third option when it comes to a passage like this is we can judge them. We can refuse to ignore or minimize, just be like, I don't want to be like those naive people over there. And so then we take all of our presuppositions, we take our worldview, and we use it as a measuring rod to judge and scrutinize the world of the Bible. And in so doing, we take our modern, Western, post-Enlightenment viewpoint to judge works of ancient, Eastern, pre-Enlightenment literature, right? And, we, and then we just dismiss them or we condemn them because we can't possibly embrace them. And the problem of all of these approaches is that they all, in one way or another, make the same mistake. All of them serve to kind of flatten the text so that it can't actually speak. They, they, they seek to alleviate this tension that we feel, but fail to, to learn from the scriptures. They fail to embrace the scriptures on their own terms, in their own context. So I want to suggest a fourth approach. Just wrestling honestly and faithfully. By, by wrestling faithfully, we choose to be faithful not only to Jesus, but also to our own convictions about who he is, like his goodness. And we remain faithful to the scriptures in the form that they come to us. Because they don't come to us as a 21st century work that's like all black and white, where everything makes sense to us in our culture. Where everything is crystal clear for us and, and just easy to understand. But they come to us instead as a complex, ancient, sophisticated form of art that simply won't give away all of its truths and beauty with a quick skim read. Sometimes we need to wrestle right? Sometimes we need to dive deep. So, you guys, that's what we're going to do today. A deep dive into the world of this passage. I love the woo. Keep that coming. <laughs> Whoever you are, you wooer. But I just want to warn you guys up front, you're going to need to put on your thinking cap today um, because there is, there is some awesome stuff in here, but it's going to take some work. So, are you guys up for this? Okay, let's, let's Trevor, let's go! <laughs> Yeah, there's my hype, man. 
All right, with all that in mind, I, I want to give you guys a short roadmap of, of where we're going. First, I'm, I'm going to work through the passage line by line just to get as clear as we can about what's actually happening in the story, all the details and the cultural stuff that's, that's coming into play. And then I want to present a few options for how in the world do you go about understanding and interpreting a passage like this. And then finally, I want us to zoom out to the big picture and ask, okay, what does this mean for people like us who are trying to follow Jesus in 2021 in suburbia, right, just north of Seattle? But like, what does this actually have to do with your life right now? Because this passage is incredibly relevant to all of us. We're going to get there. And I want to acknowledge that in putting this message together, I'm indebted to a guy named Colin Majak. His insights and thoughts have just been really, really helpful to me. So here we go. Okay, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So, just a little background information. So far, in the, in the book of Matthew, Jesus' ministry has been almost exclusively to Jewish people in Jewish areas of Israel. He has interacted with and healed a few non-Jewish people, but until now, his time has primarily been in and among Jewish people. But here in Matthew 15, Jesus leaves the Jewish territory and travels into Gentile, okay, or non-Jewish territory. And so for us, we hear, you know, we're reading along in our Bible, and we hear Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon, and we're like, okay, right? But if you were a first century Jew, you'd hear Tyre and Sidon, and it would be followed by a dun, dun, dun. Why? Because that place represented something. It represented pagans. I mean, imagine if, okay, if you heard that Jesus and his disciples wanted to get away, and imagine that this is our culture. Okay, so Jesus and his disciples are going to take a getaway, and it's our time in our world, and, and you read, Jesus booked a flight with his guys for a two-week trip to Vegas. You knew it was coming, Emily. That was really good. To Vegas, baby. I mean, because what, you know, what happens in Vegas? Okay, that would signal something to you, Right? Be like, okay, I, that's not like saying he went to, you know, Portland or Yakima or Spokane. Like Vegas is, that carries with it some stuff. Now, Tyre and Sidon wasn't exactly Vegas in the way that we think of Vegas, but it's not the kind of place that a rabbi would usually take his young apprentices. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi with 12 young Jewish disciples and then several other people that are, that are traveling around with them. And Tyre and Sidon is the land of those who reject their God. Okay, verse 22. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. So Matthew describes the woman who approaches Jesus as a, in quotes, Canaanite woman. And again, as modern readers, we, we, we read this and we think, okay, she must be from Canaan. Okay, but you guys, this language is like loaded because in the Old Testament, the Canaanites were Israel's longest standing enemies. The Canaanites were people that were driven out of their land by Israel and their worship of, of other gods and their religious practices were a constant threat to Jewish faithfulness to their own God. So to an ancient Jewish ear, to hear Canaanite translates to two things, enemy and danger to our faith. And, and here's something odd. This is the only appearance of this adjective in the entire New Testament. Scholars believe, here's why. Scholars believe that by this time, okay, by the day of Jesus, that word had fallen out of use. By the time of Jesus, if you wanted to talk about someone from that region, the word you'd most, com most commonly used was Syrophoenician. Can you guys say that? Syrophoenician, just rolls off the tongue. So it was like a current, more politically correct term. In fact, in, the, in his gospel, Mark tells the same story, but when Mark tells the story and describes what happened, he describes the woman as Syrophoenician. Yet Matthew uses Canaanite, a term that is loaded with racial and religious subtext. And by doing so, what he's doing is drawing our attention to the deep racial wound that existed between these two people for nearly two people groups for nearly a thousand years. 
So here we go. We're like a verse and a half in, and the spotlight is on, and the stage is set for us to encounter drama. Okay, but this Canaanite woman does something strange here. She cries out to Jesus and says, Lord, son of David. Now, Lord just means master, and it's just like a title of great respect. But son of David is actually a very Jewish expression, right? It's a messianic title. She's essentially saying, Lord, you are the Messiah. She's not even Jewish. They don't even believe in the Messiah. But she's saying, you are the Messiah. And despite her upbringing and her lack of access to Jewish religious instruction, she saw Jesus and somehow understood that he was like the one. That he really could help her in a way that no one else could. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. And how does Jesus respond? Does he say, that's wonderful. Go in, in faith. Your daughter is well. No. Like, verse 23, Jesus did not answer a word. Now think about for that. Like for, not a word. Not a peep. He, he doesn't even respond to this woman's, like, desperate cry. I almost imagine he just sort of keeps walking with his gaze forward. You guys, what the heck? What's going on? And this rubs us wrong because this is not the Jesus that we're used to. Right? What happened to the Jesus who has compassion on people? I like that Jesus. Well, what happened to the Jesus that's nice to people? I like that Jesus. And yet, this is exactly what you'd expect from a Jewish rabbi of the time. Rabbis did not engage women from other ethnicities warmly. And we see the disciples are not surprised at all by his response. It says, Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. The disciples are not shocked by Jesus ignoring her. This is what they would expect. And so they encourage Jesus to just tell her to go away. But he doesn't. Jesus finally speaks. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, it's not clear exactly who he's addressing here. Is, is he speaking to the woman? Is he, is, he, is he replying to the disciples? Or is he just like thinking to himself out loud? Like, okay, okay, but I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Like, who he's speaking to isn't clear, but what he says is, Jesus is saying that his messianic mission was first to Israel, okay, first to the Jews. And so this woman was not in his, his immediate scope. She's not Jewish. And this, again, rubs us wrong, right? But it's helpful to keep in mind the broader story of the Bible. What Jesus is not saying is that his mission is only to the Jews, only to Israel. The writers and the prophets of the Bible insist otherwise. They vow that, just again and again, that God would indeed rescue the entire world, that he would reach out to all of humanity, but he would do it by partnering with humanity. Specifically, partnering with a small tribe that became the people of Israel. So prophetic writers regularly used this image of Israel as a great light. A light that would then spread to the entire world, to other nations. So Jesus can't just bypass Israel because it's through Israel that God has promised that blessing would come to the whole world. And so here, Jesus reflects what Jews understood and just sort of took for granted that the Messiah's mission is to the Jews first. And even though that they've mostly rejected him so far, Jesus refuses to give up on them. So at this point in the work of Jesus, this non-Jewish woman is not next in line. She's like cutting the line. Like she's jumping the line, so to speak, right? So there's still more work to be done with the, the people of Israel first. But this is still odd. Because even in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has more than once already ministered to non-Jewish people. He's already healed Gentiles, non-Jewish people, a Roman soldier, demon-possessed men. So why his reluctance with this woman in this moment? The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. If I had to venture a guess, you guys, I would guess that if it was me, I don't know about you, I would give up at this point. 
I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, just stop asking for anything. Just turn around and go home. But this woman refuses to accept no for an answer. Verse 26. Okay, he replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yikes! I mean, like, this is a cringeworthy moment. Now, I should tell you, the Greek word translated dog here, it, it's, there's, they have different, it doesn't translate to like mangy mutt. It's better translated like cute little dog. It implies like a house dog, like a pet. So the Greek word here is chihuahua. <laughs> okay, it's not actually. But you get, you get the idea. So some people have kind of suggested, well, this is not intended to be insulting because you know who doesn't love their little scruffy? But you guys, only a pet-loving dog park Seattle culture would assume that this is not offensive. Because in, in Jewish culture, a little dog is just as unclean as a big one. So Jesus is saying she's actually not a child. She's not part of the family. She's not part of the people of God. She's a Canaanite. She's an outsider. So like, feel the tension of this moment. Jesus said it's not right for the children's bread to be thrown to the dogs. To which the woman says, I would have said, okay, yeah, whatever, dude, I'm out, right? The woman argues, yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Rather than being offended at the dog metaphor used by Jesus, the woman just kind of plays along and says, yes, the kids always get fed first, but even the dogs get some crumbs. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. You guys, this is a bizarre story. I mean, what the heck? I mean, it's as if Jesus makes this sudden, very unexpected shift. He goes from ignoring her to insulting her to praising her. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, you should know, Jesus doesn't give this high of praise to anyone. Like, he doesn't even give this level of praise to any of his Jewish followers. In fact, in the previous chapter, in that famous scene on the lake, Jesus said to his own disciples, you of little faith. Bunch of losers, those guys. <laughs> Yet, who do we find with great faith? A Canaanite woman who had the audacity to ask Jesus again and again. And the result is Jesus praised her faith and granted her request. What in the world are we to make of this story? There are so many troublesome, confusing things to try to make sense of. First of all, why was, why was Jesus silent? And then why did Jesus use the dog metaphor? And then why did Jesus change his mind and, and heal her daughter? So in order to arrive at any kind of meaning for this passage, you sort of have to come up with an answer for those questions. And for 2,000 years, people have taken a shot at all three. So this is a little bit of a generalization, but there are primarily three ways that people interpret what's happening here. And I want to explain those interpretations to you, and then I'll tell you what I think. But I have to warn you, if you feel like this has already been heady, I, like, we're going to nerd out. I'm going to absolutely nerd out. So give me permission to nerd out for a minute here, according to my calculations. Um, and we're going we're to get after this. Because I think this passage has a ton to say to us. So, a few minutes of nerding out. Here we go. And then we'll bring this back to you and me. And if you're here and you're like, I just want to get a date. We'll just tell you how to get a date. And this is going to be, okay. Um, here are some interpretations. They're, they're sort of labeled as follows. There's the progressive critical interpretation. There's the messianic mission interpretation. And there's the prophetic theater interpretation. So you got that? Okay. Uh, let's dive in with the first one. The progressive critical interpretation. And this view has kind of gained rise in the last few decades and essentially answers these questions in the following ways. First, Jesus was silent due to the cultural prejudice of a typical Jewish man. He was Jewish and a product of his own time and culture. Therefore, he carried with him the same ethnocentric bias as everyone else. Please understand, I'm only explaining the view. 
So Jesus utilized the dog metaphor because of his prejudice and racism, because they were deeply ingrained in him from childhood as a part of his culture. And then Jesus changed his mind because of her persistence. His faith was strong enough to override his presuppositions and coax him into going against his own prejudice. As you can imagine, I'm not in love with this view. Um, it certainly sees Jesus as human, and sometimes I think we don't see Jesus as human enough, and it does that, but, but ultimately sees him as nothing more. It portrays Jesus as being sinful. And, and while may, he may have been a great moral teacher, it leaves us needing to kind of pick through and, and reject him on certain things, certain issues, certain examples. But in addition to painting a picture of Jesus that I think is hard to reconcile and one that I don't think aligns, I just I don't think it aligns with the rest of the New Testament, here's a, here's a couple of other just logical issues with that view. First, it, it doesn't make sense of his interactions with other non-Jews in other cir- circumstances. Like Jesus was very warm toward non-Jews in other settings. But an even bigger question that it doesn't address well is if Jesus was just a prejudiced rabbi, why did he take the disciples to Tyre and Sidon to begin with? Why not just stay in the Jewish regions among the Israelites? And then a third thing it doesn't address is this. Jesus praises her faith as greater than any of the Jews. That's pretty odd if Jesus like, had this deeply ingrained prejudice. Okay, sec- let's move to a second interpretation. The messianic mission interpretation. The idea is Jesus was silent because he was committed to his mission. Um, He's committed to go to Israel first and then to the nations. So his silence is one of internal thinking and internal wrestling. Like, would would healing this woman compromise my mission? You know, is this the right thing to do at at the right time? And so Jesus uses the dog metaphor to communicate to the woman his dilemma. And so it's not actually as offensive as we might think. Because he's just expressing outwardly kind of what's going on inwardly. And then Jesus changed his mind because in this exchange, he has discovered a broader vision of the will of God. So while Jesus was God, he was also human. And as such, he, like us, learned over time what God's will was for his life. And specifically about God's will for his mission as Israel's Messiah. So Jesus has discovered that his mission to the Gentiles doesn't have to start later. He's just now discovering this. It can begin now. There's there's actually enough bread to go around now. And you guys, I I will tell you, there are many followers of Jesus who who subscribe to this view. I still don't think it's the best explanation. I, I still think it has holes. In fact, it has many of the same holes as the first one, which is it doesn't explain Jesus's interaction with other non Jewish people. And and it doesn't make sense of him going to Tyre and Sidon to begin with. Like, if Jesus is just now discovering in this interaction that it's okay for him to minister to non-Jews, then why why head off to a a non-Jewish area to start with? And finally, the problem of, of the dog metaphor is kind of addressed, but not very well. Like, it's still very offensive, and a degrading thing to say. Like, using that metaphor to explain a very real internal struggle I don't know, it seems to me like he could have explained it in a different way. Um, So there's a third view that I like the best. And we call this the prophetic theater interpretation. Um, And in in this interaction, Jesus is, the idea is he's not actually expressing his own view. He's expressing the view of his time in order to throw it out there so he can critique it. He plays the part of a normal Jewish rabbi momentarily in order to later make the contrary point. So Jesus uses the dog metaphor to embody a view that he actually does not hold, but a view that was popularly held in Jewish culture. And in so doing, Jesus is provoking a response of faith from the woman. He's drawing something out of her by by pushing her a little bit. The idea is a lot like that of, maybe you think of like an adult saying to a child, right, you can't do that. Like, you're not old enough, right? You're not big enough to do it. 
And when the child is like, oh yeah, and they do it, then you sit back and you smile because you knew the whole time they could do it, right? You were provoking them into doing the thing that you wanted them to do, which was a thing that they thought was too hard for them. This is really an example of Jesus being an extraordinary teacher, very, very skilled. He's expressing the popularly held prejudice only to blow it up. Like, ironically, you could sort of say that Jesus is playing devil's advocate. Okay, so in this view, Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't actually change his mind at all. He simply responds after receiving the response he had hoped for all along. And in loving her and accepting her and healing her daughter, he's simply reflecting his true heart toward those that are broken and on the outside. In this view, Jesus articulates and then critiques the presuppositions of his day. And further, he critiques his disciples who saw this woman as nothing more than an inconvenience, if not an enemy or a threat. Jesus was never articulating his own view, but the view of his culture, only to turn that view on its head to reveal God's true character and to draw out great faith from the Canaanite woman. Not only is this view, like, incredibly attractive to me, like, I, I just think it makes the most sense. Uh, it makes sense of why he responded to other Jews, non-Jews, so well, and why he went to Tyre and Sidon in the first place. He went there to teach his disciples about the grandness of God's love, and he went there to love those on the outside. And I think it really aligns with the rest of Matthew's gospel. You guys, this is awesome. If you keep reading in Matthew, something extraordinary happens. Um, there are two times that Jesus feeds thousands of people in Matthew. Like in the previous chapter, uh, he feeds 5,000. And then in this chapter, right after this, he feeds 4,000. So right after his interaction with the Canaanite woman, G Jesus goes and feeds 4,000. And if you're, if like, if you're just reading through, like you're soaping, you're doing your thing, and you're just reading through Matthew, it feels like a really weird repeat, right? Because it's like, wait, I just read about Jesus feeding 5,000. Now he's feeding 4,000? What? Like what? So in Matthew 14, Jesus feeds 5,000 in the Jewish region, Jewish people. But in chapter 15, he goes to Tyre and Sidon, and he meets this woman, then he goes immediately from there to another non-Jewish region, the Decapolis, and this time Jesus feeds 4,000 Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And some scholars suggested this is like Matthew's exclamation point on the story. That, like Matthew was a brilliant writer. It's like Matthew is saying, you Gentiles don't need to hope for crumbs falling from the table. There is enough bread for all. Jesus has enough bread for the whole world. Your, your ethnicity and religious upbringing won't stop the blessing of God from coming to you if you put your trust in Jesus. God is inviting the whole world to participate in what he's doing. You guys, there's enough bread for everybody. That, that idea like gives me chills. I was like, oh, that is awesome. Because in part, that's me. Like, I didn't grow up in the church. I, I'm a big-time outsider. Some of you may not know this. I'm not Jewish. <laughs> and many of you are in that same boat. Like, you know, you didn't grow up in the church. You're kind of a religious outsider. Like, what if, what if this story is not about Jesus excluding outsiders? What, what if it's him blatantly challenging ethnocentric prejudice? What, what if it's about his heart actually to include everyone? So if, if you're somebody who has kind of felt like or always felt like an outsider when it comes to church or faith or religious stuff, you need to know that Jesus is standing with open arms saying to you, if you come to me, you're going to get way more than just crumbs. My deepest desire is to, to feed you in a way that you didn't even know you could be fed, to feed your deepest hunger. So if you're hungry, come to me. You guys, I think this passage is extraordinary, and it has so much to say to us. So let me turn the page from all the nerdy stuff and just, just kind of end with this. What, what is Rabbi Jesus trying to teach us here? 
Like if his agenda is always to teach and challenge us, then what is he wanting to say? Because like many passages, this story, it actually speaks a thousand different truths, right? The Bible does that. You're reading, reading a passage and you read it with other people and they pull stuff out of there that you're just like, that's awesome, I didn't see that. But it's in there. This story speaks to a thousand different truths. There, there's a lot that can be drawn out of this text. We could, we could talk about the implications on ethnicity and race, right? And, the pre, and prejudice in the family of God. The, the story of the scriptures is all about the unification of all races and ethnicities under King Jesus. Like, all across the scriptures, the heart of God bleeds for every tribe, every nation, every color, all people for all time. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus himself will bleed for every tribe, nation, and tongue. So we could talk about that. We could also talk about the way Jesus had this unbelievable way of embracing and including women. His radical affirmation of women all throughout the Gospels. Or we could talk about love for our enemies. Or maybe just people that we find like inconvenient and annoying. Let's start there. And that's all good and that's all worth our, our time and that can all be found in this passage. But today, I think Jesus' main agenda for us is the same as it was for this woman. In this story, Jesus teaches us about the, the true nature of faith. Like imagine the perspective of this Canaanite woman. Like hearing of Jesus, she takes this risk to approach this Jewish rabbi knowing full well that she would be considered an ethnic enemy. Yet she has the audacity to come out and plead with him. And how does he respond? Silence. Right? He ignores her. Have you ever experienced something like that? You cry out to God. You cry out to Jesus. You ask him to move on your behalf. You ask him to heal something or do something or help you. And you hear nothing. Maybe you've prayed for healing or for a job or, or for someone that you love or for maybe for your child to come back to Jesus. Stuff that you know he cares about, but for far too long, silence is all you're getting. This woman pushes past the silence and next, we're told, she falls to her knees before Jesus. She humbles herself and assumes the posture that you would take if you were appearing before a king. Just desperation and reverence toward Jesus. And this time she's not met with silence, but with blatant rejection. Have you ever felt like that's what you were getting from God? Maybe after praying and, and, and begging God for something, you look at your life and things just got worse. It feels like, you know, you're wasting your time. Like God, if he's there at all, has just sort of moved on without you. What we see in this story is a, is a time when, when many would, would call it quits. This woman clings to a, this belief that Jesus is good and that he's powerful. And so she asks again. She argues back with him. She presses back. She, she is relentless. And it's that tenacious belief that Jesus looks at, points to, and says, that, that is great faith. That is it right there. It's precisely when she's been given every reason to not have faith, to no longer trust, that the true nature of her faith shines forward. And Jesus sees that faith and says, okay, that's it. That's what I'm looking for. And he's moved by it, and he responds. But, okay, I want to give a warning here. We, we have to be careful um, because a lot of Christian teachers have, have taught people that if you have enough faith, God will do anything you ask. Right? I mean, if you have enough faith, God will do anything you ask. And that kind of, of teaching comes from misreadings of passages just like this one. This woman, this woman overcomes all kinds of odds, and her faith is tenacious. And so in the end, Jesus rewards her, and she gets exactly what she wants. Sometimes Christian teachers will say, okay, you just have to believe. You just have to have enough faith. So it's worth asking, well, believe what? That God will do it? If I really believe God will do it, then he'll do it? Like, believe what? If I really believe that I will be healed... 
then I'll be healed? If, if I really believe that, that my friend or, or this person from work will come to Christ, then he will. If I really believe I'll be a multimillionaire, right? If I really believe, then the Mariners will win the World Series this year. See, this is where it starts getting acts. It's ridiculous at this point, right? But the idea is that if, if I have enough faith, then God will give me what I want. It's this formula. And really, this whole thing is in my control. It's all up to me. If I can just conjure up enough faith. But you guys, if you, if you press that idea far enough, it, just, it gets absurd. And, and that type of teaching and thinking has many names. Um, it can be called the prosperity gospel. It can be called name it and claim it, the health and wealth gospel, the gospel of success. But, but not only is that thinking a horrible misrepresentation of scripture, it's utterly ridiculous when you think about it. I mean, no matter how much you believe, the Mariners are not going to win the World Series this year. Okay, but this type of... Right, Mike? Yeah, okay. You're a realist. I like, I like the way you even said that. Right. <laughs> this type of thinking sets us up for heartache. If we think like, okay, this is how it works. If I believe enough, then God will. Um, inevitably, what happens is, we, we take that approach, and that doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. And, and that then can lead to a crisis of faith because we go, well, if it's not happening, maybe God isn't real. Like, like maybe, maybe I'm just wasting my breath. Maybe this is just a pretend thing. I mean, if this is how it's supposed to work and then it doesn't actually, then what does that mean? Or it, it, so it can lead to a crisis of faith. It can also lead to this feeling of spiritual inadequacy. Like, if I'm not getting exactly what I pray for and want, then it must be because I don't have enough faith, right? So I try to psych myself up into greater levels of faith, and I try again, and I psych myself up, and I try again, and I psych myself up. You can only do that for so long. And when that, when that continues to not produce what I want, the only option then left is I must not have enough, I must be a weak believer, so in the end, I either, I, I end up down on God or I end up down on myself. I, I get very concerned, you guys, when I hear like prosperity gospel thinking. Because in my experience, over the long haul, the pursuit of that kind of faith actually destroys faith. So I, I want to be careful with what you guys are hearing me say this morning. I am absolutely not saying that if you have great faith, Jesus will respond by giving you whatever you want. I am saying that if you persist in trusting Jesus, you will be deeply blessed. As I look around this room, you guys, I mean, I just look around this room and I know the stories and I've seen it again and again. You guys have walked through some incredibly tough stuff. Oh my gosh. And you've prayed and you've cried out and you have not received what you were asking for. But you have pressed on and you have pressed into Jesus and you've wrestled and you've argued and he has poured his blessing out on you. He has fed you in deeper ways that you never expected. You guys, the story of this woman is the story of, of many of you. Jesus has, has felt silent to you and then even felt like he's rejecting you. But in the process, you have made a commitment to press in, and you have argued, and you have wrestled, and in so doing, Jesus has drawn great faith out of you. And that faith now is the strength of your life. It has become the bedrock of your life. So the question that remains for us today is this. What does great faith look like for you right now? What, what would that look like for you to trust Jesus deeply? To just press in, even, if, even argue, and just relentlessly pursue Jesus? What if, what if this, you guys, is that moment where Jesus is pressing you to refuse to give up? 
What if Jesus is trying to, to draw deeper faith out of you? What if he's refining you so it's beautiful and deeper and more robust than you ever imagined possible? Because more than anything, he just wants to bless you. He may give you what you ask. Please don't hear me saying, Jesus doesn't answer prayer. Don't expect that. He does. He may give you what you ask. Or he may give you something else that's even deeper. But if you pursue him relentlessly, I'm confident of this, he will say, yes, that is what I'm looking for. And he will bless you more than you can possibly imagine because you guys, there is still plenty of bread to go around. Father in heaven, we walk in here with so many arenas of brokenness in our life. This woman had a, a child that was just being tormented and in, in so much pain. And we come in here with so many things that, that need healing and that need your, your life being breathed into them. Marriages, our, our bodies, our careers, financial situations, relationships with people that we were once close to and now not as much. And God, I just, I, I want us to become a, peop a people who has this sort of relentless faith. We cry out to you. We know that you're good. We know that you're powerful. We, we build our life upon that. And yet if we don't get what we're asking for, we continue to press into you. And in that process, you breathe something so beautiful and so deep into us. And you, you bless us in all kinds of other ways. And so, God, this morning, I just pray that you would help us. You would help us to do that. You would help us to think through, what does that look like for me? And how do I, how do I go about it this week? How do I go about it today? How do I go about it this summer, this year? Jesus, would you lead us? Amen.